This podcast episode is sponsored by Gazebo Royale. Come and celebrate your life milestones with Gazebo Royale, a special events venue located in Quezon City, Philippines. For more information, visit gazeboroyale.com. Welcome to Pocket Lectures, a lecture you can listen to anytime, anywhere. This program is part of the Arte podcast series produced at Arte, Ateneo de Manila University's Creativity and Innovation Hub. Our guest, Nick Brian Kins, is a reader in Interaction Design and director of the EPSRC AHRC Media and Arts Technology Center for Doctoral Training at Queen Mary University of London. Dr. Kins has published award-winning international journal and conference papers on his extensively funded user experience research on participatory design, collaboration, mutual engagement, interactive art, cross-modal interaction, and tangible surfaces. Please welcome Dr. Brian Kins. So uh, let's first talk about Queen Mary and Athenaeum's partnership. So okay. how did it begin? Um, where is it at now? And where do you f- see it you know, going Okay. From? So we started our partnership a couple of years ago. Um, and it was supported by CHAED and the British Council. And the idea was to find um, niche programs that we could collaborate on between the UK and Philippines. And uh, we met with uh, Father Joey in the UK and decided that it would be a good fit between Queen Mary and Ateneo. So the, both in terms of the kind of topics that we're interested in, but also the ethos of the two universities quite match quite well. Um, so that's how it started. And then since then, we've been working on developing two master's programs, double master's programs, where students spend time in Ateneo, and then they spend time at Queen Mary in London, and they end up with a double master's. Um, and the two programs that we've developed are, the first one is in uh, innovation and media and arts technology, and the second one that we're working on at the moment is in big data science. Do we have plans for undergraduate programs in the future? Or? Yeah, I think uh, undergraduate programs would be probably more around uh, exchanges or visits or something like this. So something that would add an international element uh, to an undergraduate education. And how has Ateneo been as an educational partner so far? Great. So, I mean, it's been great fun coming here and very warm welcome. And uh, I just found them very, uh, I don't know how to say, energetic and positive. And uh, so it's been, it's been really wonderful working with Ateneo to develop these programs. It's good to hear. Yeah. All right. So thank you, Nick. Uh, let's move on to our actual topic for okay. today. Yeah. So you're here to give a lecture on interactive design for media and arts technology. Yeah. So those are a lot of buzzwords. So you've got, like, you know, interactive, you've got, you know, technology. So how do these, like, uh, different, like, words actually work together. Hmm, okay. So if we think about the, uh, the two main sets of buzzwords, so interaction design and media and arts technology. So interaction design is really thinking about how do you design experiences with technology? So how do we try and create ways of interacting with technology that is maybe fun or engaging or thought-provoking? And it's about thinking about the experience more than just in terms of oh, which button do I need to press or what color shall I make the icons or uh, what shape shall I make the next iPhone. It's about how do I make experiences that actually touch me emotionally 
or that create some uh, emotional response uh, in people. So that's the first part, the interaction design. And then the second part, uh, media and arts technologies, is um, really thinking about how to use technologies in artistic and expressive ways. So it's the other side uh, of that uh, coin, if you like. So it's thinking about the creative industries. So uh, maybe it's um, um, uh, like TV or um, films or art galleries or music especially. And how do we design technologies for those, those areas in the creative industries? So would you say like for the last like five to 10 years, how has that uh, intersection between you know, the creative arts and mm. actual computer science and technology uh, made its way through the workforce or like just in a community? Well, like the main thing that's changed has been the amount of computing power that you now have on your, on your person all the time. So the, the phone that you have in your pocket is more powerful than the computer that I use to, to write my PhD on, for example. And so you can do a lot of really interesting uh, and expressive kind of interactive artwork or new kinds of... Uh, uh, music making and so on, just on your phone or even on your iWatch. So the kind of ways that we can use technology has become much more, much more personal, much more something that you can have on your, your, yourself, rather than having to go to use um, a special computer in a lab or something like that. Okay. Yeah. So we move on to, um, so thank you for clearing those things for us. Yeah. But we need, I think we need more. Yeah, so because we're going to deal with a lot of like different terms once you get to the nitty gritty of your um, lecture. So I'm going to give you a couple of um, words and terms and let's try to give a layman, more layman's terms, yeah, yeah. definition for that word. Okay, so what do we say when we're talking about uh, Internet of Things? Uh, Internet of Things. So Internet of Things is really about how we can add uh, computing technology to all sorts of devices, physical devices, right? And usually it's meant in terms of thinking about device, um, objects that would not normally have computers in them. So you might think about your toaster, uh, the thing that you use to make toast, or your washing machine, or even just the light switches in your house, having tiny computers inside them. So Internet of Things really means connecting all these different devices um, using computers um, so that you can maybe manage them more efficiently, or uh, you can monitor your energy consumption, or, uh, and so on. And what's interesting about Internet of Things is it has mostly been used for this sort of idea of making the world more efficient or, uh, I don't know, to run more smoothly. But you can use, also use it in artistic ways to make um, more reflective or political statements about the world. Yeah. So. You talked about connecting, like making that connection, having that tactile feeling. So uh, the next term would be, what are wearables? Wearables. Uh, wearables are, again, um, technologies or computer technologies that, you, that touch your body somehow. So I like to think of it that way. Rather than saying, oh, it's something you wear on your body, it's somehow something that touches your body somehow. So it could be uh, a hat, or it could be a watch, or it could be some shoes or maybe it's uh, jewelry that you wear, but it's always something that has some physical contact with your body. And what's interesting about wearables is uh, it offers a way of connecting with technology that can be more um, physical. 
so it might sense, for example, your heart rate or um, how nervous you feel. Like maybe in this interview, we've, we feel quite stressed and our heart rate's quite strong and we feel nervous so our hands get uh, clammy, right? And we could use our wearables to detect that and then maybe it would offer some soothing music to calm us down or something like that. So does that relate to the next term, which is interactive system? So is that part of that group or is that a totally different thing? Or? Interactive systems, I would say, is a broader thing. Okay. And um, interactive systems or interactive system design is, has a much uh, older heritage. So that would go back way back to like maybe the 1970s or 1980s in terms of research using that term. And that would be when the first uh, personal computers started coming out and you actually were able to design systems where you could give it some input and it would give you some output immediately. And before that, uh, unbelievably, what used to happen is you used to provide some input to the computer, maybe on a piece of paper or a punch card. You put it in the computer and maybe tomorrow you'd get the output. And I think these days, this seems like uh, totally crazy to people to think this is how it worked, right? Because the way we work now with computers, you, you type on them or you talk to them or you, know, you ask Siri a question. Imagine asking Siri a question and it doesn't give you an answer till tomorrow. Or maybe it gives you an answer next week when it's thought about it for a while. And that's how it was in the, you know, the 50s and 60s. So this whole concept of interaction and interaction design and interactive systems uh, sort of came fr from the 1970s and 80s when personal computers became faster and faster you could actually get an immediate response to your input. Gotcha. All right. So the final term would be, what do you mean by non-utilitarian experiences? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I use that term is I was trying to make a, a distinction between the kind of design that often happens in computer science classes, where you say, I want to design a system to make this process more efficient, or I maybe I want to make it so that this... Um, task that people are doing goes quicker, or I want to make people make less errors when they're using this system. And that would be utilitarian design, right, where you're trying to improve the speed or efficiency or reduce the number of errors that people make. But when you're doing artistic things, often making mistakes is an important part of the artistic process. So you don't want to eradicate the mistakes. Or when you're making art, you often find that spending a long time doing something is an important part of your artistic practice. So you don't want to make it faster. You might make, actually want to make the system slower, for example. So non-utilitarian design is about thinking, how do we design these systems so that they support us to be more creative? So not thinking about how do I make it more efficient or reduce the number of errors, but how do I make things systems that actually make me feel creative and make me feel empowered to um, express myself. So are you, are you more establishing more of an emotional connection? or? Yeah, it's partly emotional. I mean, it's a sort of emotional and artistic uh, connection. So the real challenge with that is, if you want to design a system to help people be more creative, how do you assess that? How do you evaluate that? And that's partly what I would talk about in the, the talk. And it's really... Because you can't say, oh, I can measure whether it's faster or if I reduce the number of errors. You want to be trying to measure other things like my emotional response or how creative I feel I'm being or so on. So that's the difficult part. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so moving on to the project specifics of things, how does it usually start for you? How does it all come together? What's the process like? 
Okay, that, so that's a good question. And again, that's something I would talk about later. Um, so for me, I've been thinking a lot recently about what I call inspiration-led design. So rather than uh, thinking about requirements-led design, where you write down a set of requirements of what your system should do, you start through inspiration. So you're thinking about, oh, what would happen if I took this device and did something quite different with it? Or what happened if I bring these two technologies together and use it in a different way than anybody's done before? So really, it's about uh, thinking of design in terms of not in terms of functional requirements or user requirements, but inspiration. So using a creative or artistic inspiration as the starting point for design of a system. Yeah. So with the people that you're working with, so this is obviously a team that you're working with, or okay, how big is the usual size of like the team? Like, whereabouts, like how many members are you working with? Uh, so on my projects, I would say the size of the team is if it's my PhD students, for example, it would just be a couple of people. Mm -hmm. Or it could be another research project I have. At the moment, it's got 10 people on it. Mm -hmm. So it's somewhere between 2 and 10 people per project okay. is the usual size. So it's a nice size because um, it means that you can be directly working with people and people bring their expertise. But you don't need to have like a project manager or some other layers of um, management on it. So it's a very much more, um, how can I say, responsive and reactive team, right? So you can be quite working quite well together quite quickly. Mm -hmm. Which leads me to the next question. What are the general interests? Or are there any specializations of the students that you're working with or any of the project members right now? Ah. So, in, uh, so I direct this, the uh, Media and Arts Technology Center at Queen Mary, and the point about this center is that we um, recruit students from across disciplines. So we have students who come in and they, some are computer scientists, but some are artists, uh, visual artists or musicians. Some are people who um, uh, are architects. So there's a whole range of different kinds of skills that people bring. Um, so thinking about what I'm currently working on, um, I would say there's no one sort of specific skill that people bring. The point is that they usually bring a range of different um, creative practice. That's what I'm interested in. Because I'm in a science and engineering school, so we can teach people the engineering parts. What we want is people to bring their imagination and creativity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The focus of um, a lot of your research, I guess all of them, would be sound-related. Audio-related or not really, for the most part, are they audio-related? They're mostly audio-related, yeah. Um, and that's partly because uh, I have a strong interest in music. I used to be a musician, and so I still have a, a strong interest in that area. And also because I'm based in the sense of digital music. So we have a, a lot of researchers working in that area. Um, although one of my major projects at the moment is on craft, and it, so it's not on music at all. Um, but I still use the same sort of design process, thinking about um, uh, interaction design and uh, non-utilitarian uh, design. Mm. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, what, what do you think does audio bring to the table? What does it offer as a subject matter? compared to like other forms of interactive media? Uh, I think it brings emotion and soul. And, and it brings um, 
a way of experiencing the world that doesn't need language. So um, unlike uh, written text or, or whatever, you can experience the emotion of music without understanding the language that it's written in. So yeah, so you're talking about emotion, so I think it's more of an abstract concept. How do you design systems or build interactive systems around something that's abstract? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's why I work mostly with uh, artists or other people with creative practice. It is something that you can only do through your intuition. And so it's something that you must learn by uh, practice. So learning to design systems that um, have some emotional content is, is almost an artistic practice. I would say it's more of a creative practice. So it's something you need to um, learn to do through, through yeah, hands-on uh, experience. So once you're doing that, like once you're in the heat of things, when does the question, um, how does the current study that we're doing create you know, impact on society? Like when does that question come in the process? Ah, well, that might be something that comes in at the beginning. Uh, so, for example, we work uh, a lot designing uh, interactive uh, experiences for children with uh, different abilities. So maybe children who have autism or different uh, cognitive abilities. And we would start from a point of how do we uh, create systems that allow these children to be more expressive, more creative, more socially interactive than they normally would be in, in their situation. And so that would... That design process starts with a societal goal, right, of in improving the, the, the creative aspects of these children's lives. Other projects, the um, societal value might come later once we've actually created the thing and we've gone out and tried it with people. And then when maybe we realize, oh, this would be good at uh, raising awareness of a certain issue, maybe environmental issue or social issues like that. So it can go either at yeah, either at the start or at the end, depending on the nature of the project. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you mentioned, so once that's done, you need to test it out. So yeah. how rigorous is your, you know, testing methodology? Mm -hmm. Like what is, you know, involved in actually, you know, seeing the whole thing through? Mm. So actually, yeah, the, that is one of the main um, uh, elements of the testing that I'm, I'm very interested in, is how do we use more rigorous and scientific uh, evaluation methods to evaluate these sort of creative experiences. Because uh, as an artist, you would evaluate your work uh, just by your intuition, right? And so other people wouldn't be able to replicate that uh, evaluation. What I'm interested in is how do we evaluate those experiences or those um, more emotional experiences using techniques that are more scientific so that somebody else could replicate that study later. Um, and that's, a, that's the research question that I'm mostly working on at the moment. And how do you balance um, testing things inside the lab and then out in the wild? Yeah, yeah. yeah so that's difficult because in the lab, uh, you can control the situation and you can get um, very uh, objective, so very, how can I say, um, scientific results. But the situation is very uh, unrealistic. Right. If I put you in a lab and say, go and be creative, do something you know that you find emotionally rewarding, and you're in a in a room with you know very controlled environment, it's very difficult to be creative. So, what I try to get the students and researchers to do is to combine different approaches. So, do some testing in the lab, 
of some aspects of it, but also go out and have an interactive art exhibition or just go on the street and get people to try things on the street and combine these different data sources together. That's the important thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you talked about engaging a community. Yeah. What's the difference between engaging a rural community and an urban community? Hmm. Wow. Well, there is a lot of difference in terms of, I suppose, just the infrastructure. But in the end, really, you're engaging with people. So the way that you engage with people is the same. It's just in a different context, and you've got different uh, challenges. So if we're in an urban setting, and we're trying to do some user experience study, then you've got the problem of, well, there's a lot of noise around. There's a lot of distraction from other um, experiences and so on. But in a rural community, you've got the problem of, well, there's not so much infrastructure available. Maybe there's no consistent power supply. Maybe there's no internet access. So different challenges. But in the end, you're still working with people. You're interested in how people respond. So this would be the same. Do you encounter any um, ethical issues when you're doing studies? Is that part of like one of the challenges we do when you're testing in a community? Mm. Yeah, ethics is a, a big aspect of uh, studies that you need to consider. And in the UK, in the UK uh, university system, you have to apply for ethics clearance before any study that you can do. So you have to write uh, a description of what the study will be, what kind of data you'll collect, what results you would analyze, what your methods would be, and so on. And then that has to be approved by a committee before you can even start the research. So in one way, that's actually what's useful about using these more uh, scientific methods because you can explain to the committee, oh, well, this is how we're going to do the study, these are the ethical implications, and I'm going to use these methods that have been tried for the last 50 or 100 years to, to actually do the analysis. What are the common challenges when making it fun and engaging for a community? Like, how do you keep, it, keep things fresh or like, keep them more you know, involved? So the main challenge with that is um, not to go in with your own preconception of what is fun and engaging for other people. So to make something fun and engaging, really, you need to be engaging in uh, co-design or participatory design, which means working with the people in the community to create the interactive piece. So rather than going in and saying, I'm going to make this thing and you're going to find it fun, you go in and say, let's design something together to be fun and engaging. What would you find interesting? You know, so it has to be uh, more of a communal process, a collaborative communal process. Yeah. Do you have any specific methods uh, to listening better? So listening better, um, actually the main thing that I find interesting with listening better is to try and listen through other people's ears. So if you're working with communities, it would be uh, rather than just going and recording them, getting them to talk or explain or demonstrate and picking up on the things that they're conveying through their voice or their music and so on. So I would say trying to listen through other people's ears is the main way that I would uh, try and pick up on things sonically. Okay, gotcha. All right, so talking about listening to the community, we're now uh, at the part of our program. We actually asked the Ateneo community, and someone actually sent in a very thoughtful okay. question. great. And yeah, so I'm going to read this. This is from Melanie Victoriano from Twitter. So Melanie asks, if a computer program produces an artwork, who is considered the artist creator of the piece? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. And this is one of the questions of this century. And so I don't know the answer to this question. 
And actually, we have, um, it, it is one of the big questions. And there's also a question about, um, okay, so there could be different people who would be considered the owner of that piece or the creator of that piece. It could be the programmer who wrote the program, the artificial intelligence program, right? It could be that person. Or it could be the person who came up with the way that the artificial intelligence works. Or maybe it's the artificial intelligence itself that owns the intellectual property for that piece of music. But the thing is, these days, artificial intelligence in the, in the sense of uh, machine learning and big data, what, how it works is you train it with lots and lots and lots of examples, right? So for example, if I wanted to make an artificial intelligence program that created a piece of classical music, right? I might train it with all the recordings from Bach or, and Mozart and then say, now make me a piece of music. But the kind of music it would make would be somehow inspired by Mozart, right? So is it Mozart that actually owns the output of the artificial intelligence program? Because it was only trained on Mozart, right? Um, so that is actually the question that is going to be one of the major ethical questions of this century. Mm -hmm. So are we saying we're now nowhere near, or we're, we have an idea of how to tackle the issue, or...? Or if it's even an issue? It is a big issue. It's going to be an even bigger issue uh, when uh, the artificial intelligence starts generating um, artistic content which we actually find interesting as people. So at the moment, the things that artificial intelligence is creating is basically generated from stuff that's already been made by people. right? So it's sort of derivative and it's not that interesting. So we can make a, a million pop songs, no problem. Artificial intelligence can do that. But to make a new genre of music, artificial intelligence hasn't done that yet. That would be the next step, when it makes a new kind of music and people actually like it. Then that would be a big question about who is responsible for that. Who created that new genre of music? Was it the AI or was it the computer programmer or what? But my basic thought about this is that computers don't have soul. So they can never be uh, the one that creates the artwork. All right. Well, there you go, Melanie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a really good question. Yeah. Okay. I th think we're almost done. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So. Well, thank you very much yeah, for having me. We learned a lot for sure, and I think it's gonna, you know, have more questions from the community, and I think it's gonna uh, develop more interest, hopefully. Um, but before we end uh, our program, we have. A little segment called uh, cultural or educational recommendations. Mm -hmm. So where we ask you, you know, different things that you might be able to give our audience. Like we might want to check this out. Okay. Yeah. So can you give us uh, a book or a journal or you know an article that has helped you recently for your just like your work or just like maybe just like you know amused you for a bit? So do, do you have any recommendations? You mean academic? Yeah. Paper. Okay. Um, there was a, um, a paper, maybe in the early 2000s, that kind of gave a survey of all different, and they were called New Interfaces for Musical Expression. So it's NIME, is the conference series. And there was a, a paper, uh, I don't remember the name of it, um, yeah, that surveyed all of these different new interfaces for musical expression. And I found that very interesting in terms of trying to understand the landscape of this uh, area that we're working in around. Um, 
sonic interaction design and new kinds of musical expression and so on. So that, that's the one I found interesting. And I, I tend to find that these more survey papers um, really give a insight into, um, into where a field is going. And another one, if I've got time, is there's a paper, Bill Gaver, he's a great guy, you should read his papers. And um, he talks a lot about design that is uh, not functional design, so about design that's more exploratory, uh, that's more um, reflective. So looking at Bill Gaver's papers, uh, I think it's a good place to get inspiration for um, research. All right, so what's the last album that you listened to from front to back, like from end to end? Uh, David Byrne, hmm? yeah. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but his most recent one, yeah, so I listened okay. to that quite a bit. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a good album. Okay. Is that the type of music that you're usually into, or are you more, more diverse in your... Uh, it can be more diverse, yeah. It'd be a range of things that I listen to. So um, if I have my music on shuffle, it is quite random collection of mm -hmm. music it has to be said mm -hmm. yeah quite a broad range mm -hmm. um, there's no particular genre that I stick to but mm -hmm. uh, I kind of like stuff that has a bit of edge to it gotcha. yeah all right final question out of these citation formats if they became you know a person yeah which do you think or who do you think would be a great hang like you know be nice to you know grab a drink with at the pub so mm. would, be, would it be your MLA, your APA, or your Chicago? <laughs> wow, that is, a, that is a crazy question. Yeah. Let me think. Hmm. Yeah. I would go with APA. Really? All right. Yeah. Yep. And the reason being? Um, I think it's a little bit more relaxed than the other ones. Mm. The other ones are a bit uptight. Yeah. yeah. I could agree. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, thank you, Nick, for thank joining you. us for Pocket Lectures. Yeah, welcome. And we're happy to have you here and have fun with your lecture later on. Thank you. All right, thank you. Okay.